we're going to be looking at, for a few weeks, uh, this question of what is a disciple? You know, a disciple typically would be somebody who follows after the teaching or the principles of somebody or something and uh, kind of conforms their life to that thing and allows the thing or the person to direct how they live from that point forward, direct their schedule, uh, direct elements of their lives, direct their finances, um, direct their decision-making processes. And it can be a person, you know, we think of Jesus and his disciples. Um, it can be, you can be a disciple of things even today. You can be a disciple of politics. You learn about it. You let it guide your life and your money. You can be a disciple of, uh, all students should be a disciple of schoolwork. I know you don't want to bring that up. You got a week left. You're like, I don't want to process school stuff. I got one week left before my brain just, you know, kills me. You, you should work towards that and, and put great effort in that. Uh, we, we sometimes become uh, disciples of money, how to make more, and we're all about it, and we allow that to consume our lives and direct our every attention. Um, sometimes, I know this is none of y'all, this is just other people, we become disciples of offense, of being offended and how to be more offended, and just getting mad at anybody and everybody. And we allow it to direct our lives. We allow it to direct our mind's attention. We allow it to direct everything about us, our conversations in our house. And then it begins to direct the, the, the mental well-being and emotions of our children because we allow it to spill over into all of them. But this question, what is a disciple? At the base root of it, if we're followers of Jesus, as we're going to see today, what our lives should look like as disciples of Jesus so turn, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, if you want to use a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 835. You can turn there, and you can actually keep that Bible if you don't have one. Keep that Bible. Take it with you. Everybody needs one. You can take that one. Scripture will also be on the screen. But Matthew 28, uh, this is right at the end of Jesus' time here on earth. He has died. He has risen from the dead. And he's been teaching his disciples a few things before he leaves earth uh, here. And we get to Matthew 28, and he, he meets them out in a nearby region called Galilee. They go up on a hill there in that nearby region, and he mentions these words. We're going to read here in just a second. Some of the most famous words that ever come out of Jesus' mouth. Most of you, I, I promise you, have heard these words. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Now that word go uh, in, in verse 19, in the original language, it's what they call a participle. You know, and I remember taking Greek. Uh, you know, I took it in college, took it in seminary, and that first semester, I felt like a genius. Like, I got a handle on this deal. But then we came back in January with the next section, and they dropped participles on us in the first week. 
And it like, every, all the rules we had learned the first semester went out the window because participles make up their own section. And it, it, we, we, all of us who felt like we had a handle on it, you know, went back to the drawing board and all of our homework then, all of our hours went into trying to figure participles out. But the base root of it, uh, at the most basic form of translation of a Greek participle is to add the letters I-N-G. And so here in verse 19, when it says go, you could translate that going. Going, as you go, wherever you go, make disciples. So going, so the assumption then in this verse is that Christians will go somewhere, anywhere. It can be around the world. He says it in Acts chapter 1. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. It could be to Walmart. Going, as you're going, he says, make disciples. Make them. Make disciples of all nations. That doesn't necessarily mean go to every single nation in the world. It can. There's a church here in America that their goal was to plant a church in every single nation in the world. And they, they accomplished that just a few years ago. It took them 20 years, but that was their goal. You could go to every nation in the world, I think it's like 197 or something like that. That could be what you strive for, make disciples of all nations. But really what that means is every kind of people, without exception, Irregardless of how people dress, irregardless of the color of their skin, irregardless of past decisions that they've made in their lives, it means make disciples of every kind of person without exception. So as you go, wherever you go, make disciples of everybody. Everybody you see is a potential disciple in the mindset of Jesus when he's saying this. He says make disciples of everybody, and then he gives how to do that. Two-step process. First thing, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people get confused here uh, because this is in context of Jesus' whole teaching. He's not saying baptism is necessary for salvation. It's not. Think of the thief on the cross. Jesus promised him he would be in heaven. But he didn't have time to get down off of the cross and go get baptized, come get back on the cross and then die so we get to heaven. Jesus, Son of God, same guy who says this, told that thief on the cross, you're going to be with me in paradise today, heaven today. Baptism is, it's a symbol, yes, of what happens when you believe in Jesus. Going underwater represents dying to the old way of life, sin, following your selfish ambitions. Coming out of the water represents getting a new life in Jesus. But really what baptism is, it is, it is a declaration of allegiance, especially in that day and time, and even today in many parts of the world. They don't consider you a follower of Jesus. They don't consider you serious about following Jesus until you've been baptized. Because that's declaring to everybody, I belong to Jesus. It's a public declaration of faith. You ever heard that phrase, public declaration of faith? It's considered baptism to be that, a public declaration of faith. Declaring, I am a, I, I, my allegiance lies only with Jesus and nobody else. And so while baptism is not necessary for salvation, Jesus including it here is saying it is a, a public declaration. It is an act of obedience. It is declaring, I am his. And so Jesus said, make disciples. How you do it? You share the gospel with them. They get saved. You baptize them. They declare to the world they belong to Jesus. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So teach them everything. Everything that came out of Jesus' mouth, not just the stuff that's easy, not just the stuff we like, but he says teach everything, everything. It's also interesting, too, 
that we're teaching, it carries with it the implication of another word. It's not just teach them knowledge and have them ingest it and have them memorize the instructions and words of Jesus. There's a back end of that that is implied in that word, and that's application. When Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, he's saying, you teach it to them, but then they have to apply it. He says, make disciples. And so disciples are, are, you know, you you make disciples by sharing the gospel, people getting baptized, declaring they belong to Jesus, and then they take the words of Jesus and apply it to their lives. We can't be followers of Jesus if we're not applying his instruction. We can't be followers of Jesus if we're not doing what he said. We can't be followers of Jesus if we don't follow him. So he says, go out and make disciples. And he's, he's instructing his disciples, the only ones he has at this point. He's telling them, what to do. This is your game plan from here on out. Go out and make disciples. Now notice too, he doesn't give any distinction in what he says about who is allowed to go out and make disciples or who is allowed to go out and teach. Like it's not just a special group of people. You don't have to have a special education. You don't, I mean, one of the greatest people in the last several hundred years who did this, Billy Graham, did not have a biblical education. I mean, he, he didn't have a seminary degree. And God used him but in, a, in a greater capacity to reach more people single-handedly than anybody else that we know of. It's not about that. It's about a willingness. It, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. In, in Paul, you know, in Jesus' own language, doesn't matter if you're slave or free, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what you did last night. If you go out and you tell people about Jesus, this instruction is for everybody. Make disciples. I mean, think about those disciples he had. He didn't have what we would classify in our world's, you know, uh, uh, classification system, he, we wouldn't classify those guys, his disciples, as cream of the crop. They wouldn't be our A team. They wouldn't even be our B team. They're, they're the guys we got to pick when there's nobody left to pick. And Jesus picked them right out of the gate. Not because they were qualified, not because their resumes look good, but just because they were willing. That's the only thing Jesus needs. And so these guys come out, and he's telling them, go and make disciples. As you're going out there into the world, make disciples. You, you share the gospel with them. You baptize them. You teach them everything. Have them apply it to their lives. And so you go out and do this. He's telling this to his disciples. So what are disciples? What is a disciple? Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples by, by, by giving the gospel and by Growing the people. That's what that is. You, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. you. You make disciples. Disciples make disciples by those two things. By giving the gospel and growing the people. Giving and growing. Giving the gospel and growing the people. Disciples make disciples. That's his directive to his followers. And so these disciples then take that message and they go out and they do that. They start making disciples left, right, and center. And so people get, are getting saved by the thousands. And then those people go out and start making disciples, sharing the gospel. People get saved, get baptized. They start teaching them the words of Jesus. And, and, and more people get saved. And now they're trying to figure this whole deal out. And as tends to happen, when any people are involved, problems arise. Have you ever noticed that people cause problems? Anybody? 
People, can I get an amen? People cause problems. The world would be easy if it weren't for people. People cause problems. Actually, my, my dad used to say, he's a minister down in, in Houston, Texas. Uh, he used to say, church would be perfect if it weren't for people. Uh, uh, but these, this, this early church has the words of Jesus to go out and make disciples, and they're doing that. But then a situation arises as they're taking care of each other, trying to provide for each other and love on each other. And uh, it's been said that this thing that, ha- that happened within the church was an oversight. It was, it was an accident. But what ended up happening is the people, were, the people in leadership were just caring and ministering to a certain group of people based on racial lines. And were leaving out a whole section of people uh, who were of a different race. And this division arose and came to the attention of the apostles, the, the, you know, the original uh, uh, disciples. And they went before the church and they said, okay, we gotta, we got to fix this. This is wrong. You have allowed this thing to happen and it's wrong. And so what the church did is they put forward some people to try to fix this issue. They put forward some people, the qualification who, uh, being people who were full of the spirit, not people who knew had good organizational skills, not people who had good administrative gifts, but people who were the qualification. In a few months, we're going to nominate more leadership members in our church. The qualification, we don't care about the resume. Qualification is people who are full of the spirit. Same as Acts chapter 6. That's where the story is. They put forward these people to help take care of it, and these people alleviated the problem. But they didn't just do that. These, these people who were put forward full of the Spirit uh, began to go out, and they began to make more disciples and preach in the streets. And they, God blessed them phenomenally. People are getting healed left all over the place. And, and two of these guys, I want you to remember two of their names, these people who helped do this. One of them was a guy named Stephen. One of them was a guy named Philip. Two important names, Stephen and Philip. Well, Stephen goes out, and he, he kind of takes the lead on this deal and he's preaching in the street, and people, every time he opens his mouth, are getting saved. I mean, all over the place. Just, he's, making, he's fulfilling the words of Jesus, making disciples everywhere he goes. And this causes a problem there in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem had been historically led by the Jewish religious leaders. And they see their political power slipping out of their hands. And so they raise up some false accusations. They, they get some disreputable people to come, pay them off. These guys start making accusations about Stephen. Stephen gets arrested, taken before the court, same court that sentenced Jesus to death. They bring Stephen in, bring in the false witnesses. They testify these things about Stephen. He did that and he did that. And then they give Stephen the opportunity to defend himself, just like in our courts today. They give him the opportunity to defend himself. This is where I love, you know, people like this who are full of the Spirit. Stephen had every right to, de- to bring his case and defend himself, but he doesn't. Stephen doesn't utter one word to defend himself. Stephen looks at the room, and what, what he's hearing in his ear isn't, hey, defend yourself and, and go down a list uh, of reasons why they should let you go. What he hears in his ear is Jesus' words, are Jesus' words. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And he looks at that room of people who were mad at him, people who sentenced Jesus to die, people who are there to determine whether or not Stephen will die. And he says, I'm going to make disciples of these people. And so Stephen goes on, and he shares the gospel to those people. 
Those people who killed Jesus, he shares the gospel with them. Well, they don't like that. So at the end of his gospel presentation, they grab him from the witness stand, drag him out in the street, and execute him without a guilty sentence. They just forego that whole section of the court proceedings. Take him out, execute him. Stephen's dead. Well, at that point, this this mass uh, persecution breaks out in the city of Jerusalem. And they're kicking in doors of Christians. Christians praying over their, their meal at night, and they're busting in, and they're ripping the parents away from the kids, and they're beating them and taking them to prison. Some of them are getting killed as well all in the process. Paul tells us some of that later on because he was involved in that, breaking in and killing people and taking them to jail. And in the middle of all this persecution, they still hear the words, the Christians make disciples. Well, they leave, many of them, leave Jerusalem. If that were happening in Dequeen and our doors are getting busted in because you're Christians and getting carted off to jail, people getting beat in the streets and executed, would you be here very long? They didn't care about due process. They don't care about any of that. No, we'd be out the door trying to protect your kids. So Christians left, many of them. Not all of them. The apostles, 12 apostles, 12 disciples, they stayed. Some of the other Christians stayed. But many of them left. And you know where they went? Remember Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, it tells us when this great persecution breaks out, they went from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Up until that point, they'd stayed in Jerusalem, and now they're going out there to fulfill the words of Jesus. Well, remember I told you two names, Stephen, who's now dead, and Philip. Philip, one of those guys nominated, he goes to nearby Samaria, and he goes up into Samaria. Now, if you know anything about, you know, you've heard about the good Samaritan, right? Woman at the well, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Well, here comes this guy out of Jewish Jerusalem, goes into the city of Samaria, Philip, and he just sets up shop in the street in Samaria and starts sharing the gospel. And people start getting saved like crazy. All over the place, they're getting saved. They're dropping to their knees and weeping and getting saved. And so many people get saved in in Samaria. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, that that joy breaks out in the whole city because so many people are getting saved. I mean, imagine that in Dequeen. If so many people got saved, the spirit in the city was joy constantly. Not worry, not anxiety, not frustration or irritation, but joy. Everyone you encountered. Well, this revival was so massive as as Philip is there and preaching every day, all day, every day. Word reaches back to Jerusalem, persecuted Jerusalem. And so the church there sends Peter and John to go check it out. Peter and John go up there to Samaria, check it out. Man, this is legit. And they pray for them. Holy Spirit fills everybody. Peter and John leaves, and you would think with the revival that just keeps going on, where people keep getting saved, Philip, we need you to be here and help do this thing. Well, God comes to Philip and says, Philip, leave. Leave the revival, which is where we're going to be. We're going to look at that. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Acts chapter 8. Verse 26, on page 917 if you're using a pew Bible. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. So Philip, he left Jerusalem because of persecution, goes to Samaria, massive revival in Samaria. 
And then God comes to Philip in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So God gives Philip two instructions. Rise up from where you are and go. Rise up and go. Philip doesn't question. Philip doesn't hesitate. Look at what he does, verse 27. And he rose and went, immediately fulfills the words of God. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, you've got this guy, this Ethiopian. Uh, he is a court official, the man in charge of the treasurer of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The word Candace, now it's a name. Back then, Candace was a title, like king or Pharaoh or Caesar. And so that was her title. And so he was, you know, a very important guy in the nation of Ethiopia. But something within him drove him to go to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. He doesn't know Jesus yet. He knows about God. And this, this trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was a one-way, a 54-day trip to go to Jerusalem. He would stay there a while, worship, and then make the journey home. And he's on this road having left Jerusalem. And, and Philip goes out there having left this massive revival to go to the middle of nowhere. And, and he comes across this Ethiopian. Now, we learn this Ethiopian is riding in a chariot. Now, this isn't like what you might think, like, like Ben-Hur, like, like a little chariot for one dude. This is a massive, like, stagecoach-type chariot, huge. There's more than one. We learn there's at least two, possibly three, four people in this chariot at the time, maybe more. Uh, there's a driver. You've got the, the Ethiopian uh, treasurer uh, and probably a servant who is reading some scripture to him, and then Philip's going to get in the chariot here in a second, and it's not like crowded, there's plenty of room. So this is a big, it's like a caravan, a huge deal here, going down this desert road. And Philip goes out there and he sees this thing. Uh, look at verse uh, 28. So the Ethiopian had gone to Jerusalem and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now that's important, because it tells us a lot about this guy. He's curious about God, and he's also very wealthy. Because for any individual person to have a scroll of any part of Scripture was incredibly rare. Because that scroll would have been massively expensive. They all had to be hand meticulously hand-copied. And he, maybe he bought it in Jerusalem when he was just there. And he's coming back and he's reading the prophet Isaiah, trying to figure out what it says. Now that, there is no coincidence when it comes to God. There's a very specific reason he's reading what he's reading here. Uh, verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I want you to pay attention there, what the Spirit says to Philip. Go over and join the chariot. Let me ask you, does the Spirit say to Philip to say anything? Does, is, let me just read the words. Does the Spirit tell Philip to say anything? No. The Spirit just says, go over. And join this. That, that doesn't mean go over and jump in the chariot. Join the chariot means go over and just get near it. Join the pacing of the chariot. So remember before, Philip was told by God, rise up and go. So Philip rose up and went. And so here, God says to Philip, go over to the chariot and look what Philip does. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? 
So in obedience, Philip goes over by the chariot. Not slowly, not meanderingly. He runs to the chariot, keeps pace with the chariot, hears Isaiah the prophet being read, but he doesn't have to be told, say something to this guy. He hears him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he can't help but speak out to this man of a different class, this man of a different ethnicity, this man from a different nation. Uh, He speaks out and says, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of, of the scripture that he was reading was this, from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now, it's a very important question. This, this, this Ethiopian is very wise. Um, Because when it comes to this passage from Isaiah 53, this was a common question in in that day and time, a a, a common form of discussion in first century Judaism. This passage from Isaiah 53, is, is Isaiah writing about himself? Is Isaiah writing about Israel as a nation? Or possibly Isaiah is writing about the Messiah? Well, Philip, who is a follower of Jesus, knows Jesus. Philip, who's full of the Spirit, hears these words. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And so Philip's thinking, that's obviously Jesus, led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Jesus didn't answer some of the accusations that came to him from his accusers, from Pilate, from Herod. He's thinking, this is Jesus. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Jesus, his life was taken away from the earth. Jesus is who this is about. It's almost as though God teed up this opportunity. God set the whole thing up, told him to go to the desert road, told him to go next to the chariot. This guy's reading this passage, and God's teeing up the opportunity, the gospel opportunity for Philip. And Philip has now been invited into the chariot, having heard this. So look what Philip does, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip didn't have to be told by the Spirit to share the gospel with this Ethiopian because Philip had already been told by Jesus to go and make disciples. The Spirit just said, go over here. And Philip already had the instruction from Jesus, so he already knew what he needed to do. It's not like when you sometimes tell your small children, do this thing, and they, like a goldfish, instantly forgets the thing. And you got to tell them 25 times before you get the thing done. You almost have to go over there with them and guide their hands to do the thing. With Philip, no, he just had to be told by Jesus one time, go and make disciples. And so now Philip is, it goes over here by the chariot. It's almost like he has a, 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 like a barrier around him. And when somebody close gets close enough within that barrier, he's like, Poof, I'm making you a disciple. Poof, I'm making you a disciple. You're getting close enough to hear my voice, you're going to hear the gospel. And so this guy, this this Ethiopian eunuch is right there, and Philip says, here is who that scripture is talking about. And so starting with that scripture, it says, he told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. And this, this Ethiopian gets saved in the process of this conversation. Verse 36, 
As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Nothing prevents him. In Jerusalem, going to worship God at the temple, all kinds of things would have prevented him from going to worship God. I mean, if he was a eunuch, he wouldn't have even be able to enter the temple. If that was just a, a, a title of their category, which it was in some nations, he could have gone into the, the, the court of the Gentiles, but that's as far as he could go. He couldn't go closer to God. They said, you can get to God, but you can't get any closer than this. Only special people get to get closer than this, and you're not special. You're prevented from going there. And so now, hearing the gospel, getting saved, he says to Philip, what prevents me? Me, from Ethiopia. Me, eunuch, what prevents me? Philip says, man, nothing. Let's stop this thing and get this taken care of. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So that rejoicing, that's just like we talked about a second ago from verse 8 of the same chapter. You can go back and look. It's not cheating. You know, where, when genuine revival breaks out, when people get saved, genuine joy is present. So this guy experiences Jesus and joy is present. He rejoices, even though Philip just disappeared. Not like Star Trek with, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, the stuff that transports him away and the colors come up and everything. Captain Kirk is gone. It's just like Philip's gone. Just boom, disappears. Philip lowers him in the water, raises him out of the water, and then he's gone. So yes, it would have been kind of freaky for Philip to be one place and then all of a sudden somewhere else. But imagine the, the Ethiopian. This guy's been sharing the gospel with you. He appears on the road. He shares the gospel with you. You go down and get baptized by this guy. As you're coming up out of the water and you look and he's not there anymore. Like he's, he's gone. Just disappeared. The Ethiopian doesn't worry about Philip anymore. He doesn't care. He's got Jesus. So he takes his Jesus, hops back on his caravan, and takes it home. The gospel to his home with great rejoicing. But now, when we get to verse 40, everything we know about Philip so far, what do you think Philip's going to do when he appears somewhere else? Look at verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. See, Philip looks up and sees a new town, and he sees, hey, there's people who need Jesus. He just goes over and starts sharing the gospel. And when it says preaching the gospel, that's not like what you picture with a preacher on a stage declaring. When, when, when it says preaching the gospel in this way, that phrase preaching the gospel, it just means sharing the gospel. It can mean preaching on a street, on a soapbox, or it can mean just having a conversation with somebody. It means telling somebody about the saving power of Jesus. So all you people can do the same thing. You can preach the gospel to anybody. Philip looks up, sees a town he hadn't been to before, and says, I bet they need Jesus. And he goes over there and shares the gospel. And then he preaches it all through that town. Then he goes to the next town, then the next town, the next town. And then he gets all the way to Caesarea, tells them all about Jesus. And you find out at the end of the book of Acts, he settles in Caesarea. And he develops, people start calling him by a title. Because he's so dedicated to telling people about Jesus. Not because maybe he's especially gifted at it. We don't know. All we know is Philip took the words of Jesus, make disciples, and took it for real. 
didn't pretend with it, didn't act like, oh, yeah, I know about making disciples, whatever, sharing the gospel. He, he, he developed his entire life around this phrase. And so at the end of the book of Acts, Philip is called the evangelist. Not an evangelist, not some guy who evangelizes. He's called Philip the evangelist because he told people about Jesus everywhere he went. Everywhere he went. It actually says, I think it was Paul went to Caesarea and he needed a place to stay. So he went to the house of Philip the evangelist. Found a kindred spirit in sharing the gospel. Philip, everywhere he went, did what Jesus had already told him to do. Make disciples. And so in, in general, us as, as Christians, our assignment and calling has never been confusing. It's never been confusing. I had somebody ask me one time, what's the mission of our church? What, what, what's our job here at church? Well, Jesus gave it to us in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Make disciples. Okay, I want something a little more specific than that was what they told me. Their, words, their actual words were, that's not enough. Well, I kind of think it is. <laughs> Make disciples. It's not complicated. Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus and then teach them about Jesus. Show them how to apply it to their lives. You say, I don't know how to tell people about Jesus. Who is a guy named Bob Fielding? Some of you, some of you in here may know him. He, he, was, he would always say, his catchphrase, maybe it would be on his tombstone one day when he dies. If you know enough to know Jesus, you know enough to tell people about Jesus. You don't got to give them big theological answers. If they start asking you about the second coming or they start asking you about predestination, you say, okay, I'll go look it up. I'll go, I'll go figure that out. I'll go and we'll, we'll, we'll look at it. Jared pops in my office all the time with some theological question. He thinks I know all the answers. And I say, hang on a sec, let's look it up. <laughs> let's, let's look that up. Uh, I'm not sure where, where that's going. That, 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 let's, let's figure this out together. Uh, you got you to look stuff up because we... Don't know everything. But if you know enough to know Jesus, you know enough to tell people about Jesus. So Philip goes out here and he tells people, us as Christians, our assignment and calling has been and always has uh, uh, had clarity because of what Jesus told us. Because we're supposed to do what Jesus already told us to do, make disciples. We're supposed to do what Jesus already told us to do, make disciples anywhere and everywhere. That includes ourselves, make disciples of ourselves, grow ourselves, and grow people along with us. Bring them along the journey because we're all on this journey together, trying to figure it out together, trying to, to help each other together. Not a day goes by that I don't have a conversation or a phone call with somebody who encourages me in my walk with Jesus, teaches me something I didn't know before. You, you've got to help each other in the process to fulfill this, this calling, make disciples. Make them. Create them. Start them. Not that you have the power to do it, but that Jesus in you does. You bring Jesus to somebody who needs hope, somebody who needs help. And he'll provide all the help and hope they need. Our, our instruction from Jesus is to bring them the gospel. To help them apply scripture to their lives. So we make disciples. Now you see, I brought the prayer pew back out. My boys helped me carry it in yesterday. 
know, we've had this prayer pew out at, at strategic times these last few years. And we got post-it notes on here, and we got pins on here. And what we've done in the past, we write down, you know, prayer requests, and we slap it on the prayer pew, and people will come up during the week and pray over these. But this is what we're going to do over these next few months as we talk about making disciples. You see, in the month of August, we're going to talk about making disciples, how to make disciples, what to do, what's, you know, you know, what are some things I can say? What are some what are some things people in Scripture experienced? Then the month of September, we're going to talk about prayer, praying big prayers, praying big faith prayers, including for the salvation of some specific people. And then in the month of October, every message in the month of October is going to be evangelistic. Now I share the gospel in every message from the pulpit, but in the month of October, that's the point of all of them: get to the cross as quick as possible. It's all going to be there. So you bring people to hear the gospel, like a month-long revival every Sunday. But what we're doing over these next two months, August and September, before we get to the evangelistic uh, uh, specific messages in October, is I want you to write on these post-it notes names of people that you know that need Jesus. Maybe you don't know their name. All you know is that guy I see three times a week at Easy Mart. You just write, guy at Easy Mart. Slap it on the pew. That, 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 that woman I run into every single week on the bread aisle, we complain that the bread we want has just been taken by that other person. We've got to settle for the other kind of bread. Write that, write it on there, bread woman. Maybe you don't know their name. Or maybe you do know their name and you want to keep it a little anonymous. And, you know, I mean, nobody really is going to share what's on this pew, names on this pew. And then when we get to the evangelistic stuff in October, this pew will be moved. But... Uh, write names, and I guarantee you every single day from now until we get to October, those names are going to be prayed over every day, every day. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a brother, sister, parent, child, aunt or uncle, somebody who needs Jesus. Write it on one of these Post-its, preferably legibly, and put it on the pew, and it will be prayed over between now and then. But in that as well, maybe God is raising up within you the courage to be the answer to that prayer. Maybe God put you, Christian, in that person's life to bring them the gospel. So maybe as you pray over that name you're going to put on this prayer for you, you need to pray that God would give you the courage. Jesus gave us a guarantee in, the, in uh, I believe it's Matthew, uh, no, Mark and Luke, a guarantee that when we come to those moments, the words would be in our mouths. The Spirit would put it there if we are willing to follow his direction. So will you come, put names, pray over these names, and then go and make disciples? Maybe today you need to be made a disciple. Maybe today you've heard about Jesus many, many times before. You, you, you've been to church. You, you've come at different times, and you need Jesus. You need that hope. You need that help. You need that way through. Then you can believe in Jesus. You don't have to live a certain way. You don't have to act a certain way. You don't have to, there was somebody I was talking to just the other day, this week, and, and his, his words were, well, I got I to gotta do this in my life and get right before, before I could come. I said, no, you don't. 
You don't have to get right before you come to Jesus. Actually, Jesus is the one who makes us right. So us trying to get ourselves right messes everything up. You don't need to get right before you come to Jesus. Just get to Jesus and let him take care of everything else. So if you're arguing in your mind, thinking, I got to get right. I need to get my life right, get my stuff in order before I come to Jesus. Don't worry about that. Don't, don't, don't. That's the enemy trying to trick you into not believing in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe that he is the son of God. He died so all your sins would be forgiven. All of them. Even the ones you're ashamed of and haven't mentioned to anybody. It's in the back recesses of your mind. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And all you have to do is believe that he did that and you're saved. That's it. It's not harder than that. Some people try to make it harder than that, more complicated. It's not. You just believe in Jesus and you're saved. You're a Christian. And your, your eternity is settled in one moment. It takes a lifetime then of following after him. But how you follow doesn't determine whether you go to heaven or not. What determines whether you go to heaven or not is whether or not you believed. Because he died for your sins and rose so you can live. Will you believe in Jesus today? Y'all pray with me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for guys like Stephen and Philip who didn't hesitate when it came to, to the hard road, living the Christian life. They did what you had for them to do without question, Without hesitation, they just walked in faith, full of the Spirit. And so many people got saved because of their willingness. God, I pray that we today would be just as willing, if not more so, to follow after you. Dedicating our lives to you, becoming your disciples. Building our lives around you. God, I pray that that would become our purpose to make disciples. We would understand that's why we're here. We've been called up. We've been put in the game. We're off the bench and now it's time to go. To make disciples. That's why we have the family we have. That's why we have the job we have. That's why we live where we live. That's why we go to the stores we go to is to make disciples. God, I pray we would we would be a Philip. We would only need to be told once, and we would go and do it. We would jump. We would run, as you tell us. And those people in our lives, those names that are popping up that we're going to come and write on this prayer pew, God, I pray you would give us the courage and the strength to speak truth, the truth of the gospel, in love, generosity, and compassion. And God, if anyone in this room on watching online needs to know you today, that this would be their moment of salvation. This would be their moment of change. This would be their moment of belief. And they would come to believe. Stop the arguing. Stop the debating. Stop the delaying tactics. And they would just do it now. Believe in you. God, we thank you. Thank you. 
for salvation. And that we don't have to do anything special to be saved. Because you already did it in your death and resurrection. In your name I pray. Amen.